Hello, and welcome to the first episode of A History of Jazz, a new podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. I'm super eager to get directly into the subject matter at hand, but before I do, I want to talk just a little bit about sort of the format of this show and how often you can expect to hear it, things like that. So at the moment, my intentions are to do this bi-weekly, meaning one episode every other week, not two episodes a week. I think that's about as fast as I can reasonably do it right now. I'm hoping to eventually build up enough episodes in advance that I can switch to weekly, but for now, I think every other week is as good as it's going to get. I'm expecting the episodes to typically be no longer than 30 minutes, but I'm pretty sure this episode, this first one, is, is going to be quite a bit longer. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm launching this show today, February 26, 2017, for a very specific reason. Today is the 100-year anniversary of the first ever jazz recording, which we will finish this show with. After this episode, we will primarily be going over jazz history, as I said, but using as our metronome the recordings as they were made by musicians from that first one in 1917 up until as far as we get. For this episode, though, we need to lay the groundwork for how we got to that first recording. And it seems like the logical place to start would be with a few definitions. So the first definition that I think we would want to talk about is, okay, it's a history of jazz. What's jazz? And more specifically, where does that word jazz come from? What's that all about? The fascinating thing, and not necessarily helpful when you're trying to make a new podcast, is that the answer to that question, where did the word jazz come from, is, well, nobody knows. We can't define the word. The earliest use we know which was in a newspaper in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Times, back in 1912. But it wasn't having anything to do with music. It was a quote from a baseball player about a type of new pitch he was going to try out for the upcoming season called a jazz ball. After that, the next time we see it's in San Francisco, also in a newspaper, the San Francisco Bulletin, in 1913, being used as a sort of positive euphemism for enthusiasm or for pep. As far as we can tell, the first time it was used for music wasn't on the West Coast, it was in Chicago in 1915. But even that is definitely up for debate. There are quite a few claimants to having originated the term or having coined it. We'll never know, but I do enjoy some of the many, many, many legends there are around where the term came from. Uh, One of them is that a dancing slave on a plantation somewhere near New Orleans in around 1825, his name was supposedly Jasper, and he was stirred into a fast dance step by the cries from the crowd, come on, jazz. Another one is that there was apparently a band conductor around 1904 New Orleans named Mr. Raz, and somehow that transmogrified over time to jazz. In that same vein, there was a, a supposedly an eminent ragtime drummer of Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1895 named Charles Washington, and he was called Chaz, which supposedly became jazz. There's a story that in 1910 Chicago, some sign painter was painting a sign advertising the Boise James Band and wrote, music will be furnished by jazz period band. Uh, Boise then supposedly became known as old jazz and his music, Jazz is Music, and that was eventually turned into jazz. Another story is that there was apparently an itinerant musician named Jasbo Brown who came from somewhere in the Mississippi River Valley, and similarly to uh, Jasper, people would yell for encores with, more Jasbo, more Jazz, more. So 
I don't particularly believe in any of these legends, but I do think it's relevant that all of them refer to either African-American people or African-American culture. And the ground floor of any discussion of the history of jazz has to say that this is a music that came from African-American people in the United States because of slavery. That we can say. Everything else in this early period is somewhat up for grabs. That isn't. That's where it came from. So we can't define the word. We've got all these fun legends. We don't know. Can we at least define what the word means? Okay, we don't know where jazz came from. That's fine. But what is jazz? And there again, we have no real definition. What is jazz? Well, jazz is whatever anyone sold as jazz. Jazz is whatever music people have called jazz. Jazz comes from African Americans. Jazz is all of these things, but it's not possible to say this music is jazz, this music is not jazz. So many different kinds of music have been played over the last uh, 100 plus years that someone has called jazz, and I'm going to leave it to the listener of this show to determine which of these things you think is jazz and which of these things you think is not jazz. The primary definition that we can talk about is that jazz is a collective music that allows for individualism to flourish. The message is to be yourself. It's a music of community, it's a music of communication, and it's a music of collective individualism. So even this last thing I'm going to say now is not necessarily always true, but most music we call jazz is in some sense improvised. Improvisation is then the heart and soul of jazz music. Sometimes that improvisation is impromptu, it's happening in front of you. Sometimes that improvisation happened at another time and it's become an arrangement. But it's always or almost always there in some form in the music. And therefore, unlike in European classical music, a jazz piece can only be properly reproduced by the person who originally played it. So in European art music and classical music, Beethoven could write some music, and maybe Beethoven wasn't the best pianist, and a better pianist could play Beethoven's music better than Beethoven did. But in jazz, it's not a composed music in that sense. And so while another musician might be technically better, they can't produce the exact same tone and timbre and timing of the original player. A jazz musician is simultaneously an improviser, a composer, and an interpreter. And this improvisation exists inside of a collective whole. Dave Brubeck, phenomenally talented jazz musician who we will hear a lot more from in the future, uh, said, Jazz is about the only form of art existing today in which there is freedom of the individual without the loss of group contact. That sums up jazz as an art form the best that I've been able to do it. Everything else is just listening to the music and, and, and seeing what you think. Okay, so now that we've got some definitions in hand, or at least as best as I think we can do now, and we'll keep working on it as we go through, Maybe one of these shows we'll, we'll figure out something completely new and we'll finally put a bow on it all. So let's move from definitions to history. And before we move to the direct history that led to the creation of jazz, let's talk about something, let's talk about sort of the pre-story to the story, and that is Africa. If we're saying that jazz is the product of African Americans, then we can't really talk about that without first talking about where the African-Americans came from, and that's Africa. Now, it's really, really important here that we recognize that Africa isn't one musical culture. It isn't one culture of any kind. 
North Africa is very different from the rest of Africa. South Africa is very different. West Africa is different from East Africa. All of those places have different countries, different tribes, different peoples, different history, different cultures, different musical cultures. West Africa, which is where a majority of slaves were captured from, also doesn't have only one culture of musical tradition. There are a ton of different cultures. But in West African musical tradition, as a whole, if you look at it that way, there are some shared traits. And I think it's useful to look at those and see how they inform us as we move through this story. So in Africa, almost all music includes some form of call and response. And that is also true of almost every form of African-American music, most definitely including jazz. In Africa, though, that call and response is more about a connection between audience and performer. It's a means of direct communication. It's important to recognize that African music, unlike European music, was not primarily an art form. It was more of a communication form. It wasn't art for art's sake. It was art as a tool. In fact, African drumming was even used as a form of sign language in some cases. So all of these influences... And all of these ideas around music as communication, music as, as call and response, music as, as not directly as art, these are part of the historical legacy of the people who we would later call African Americans. So with that in hand, I think we can actually start our story, which if you read the title of the episode, you know, begins in 1619. And I, I bet that some of you saw that and said, there was jazz in 1619? That's that's new to me. Okay, let's. what's that about? Well, no, there definitely was no jazz in 1619, but we still have to start our story in 1619, and that's because that's the year that Africans first arrived on this continent in Jamestown in Virginia. There were 19 or so, and they were brought by Dutch traders who had seized them from a captured Spanish slave ship. We cannot talk about jazz in any sense without first talking about slavery. By 1798, every state in the country had banned the importation of new slaves. So our country, the revolution is in 1776, we declare independence, uh, we win a war against the British, we have a new country, the constitution gets ratified, that happens in 1789. So by 1798, every one of these new states has banned the importation of slaves. But by that time, from 1619 to 1798, there were... 400,000 Africans who had been stolen and brought to this continent. And they had everything stripped from them. They were denied everything but the most basic, basic, basic existence. Their very humanity was denied because you have to deny someone's humanity to own them. If you're going to be a slave owner, you cannot view these people as people. But they are people, and they clung to their own cultural history as best as they possibly could. And a large portion of that history was their music. So as we talk about that musical history, I think the first thing we want to talk about is a a, a sort of a myth that I want to dispel here. It is widely believed or widely discussed if you look at very cursory overviews of jazz that it's the merging of an African rhythmic sophistication with a European harmonic sophistication. That is the idea that, that African music was polyrhythmic and the drumming was, was very advanced, but that European harmony was, was the primary melodic output of, of jazz. Jazz is a music that exists as a confrontation of African and European ideas and influences. Certainly things came from both places. And while it is true, I think, that European harmonic ideas passed into jazz, they came not directly, 
They came through ragtime and other early influences, and even those influences were filtered through the cultural experiences of African people and African-American people, which changed them from anything that you find in European music. So when you get to jazz, the harmonic nature of jazz is just very, very dissimilar to the European music of its time. And there's actually a term for this. Anthropologists call it syncretism, which is the blending together of cultural elements that previously existed separately. What primarily comes out of this blending, then, is fundamentally different from European music, especially in the sense that everyone in a jazz band is striving to have their own unique voice be heard, whereas in symphonic, traditional classical European music, the most important quality is homogeny, right? Everyone wants to form a collective whole and sound harmonically synchronous with each other. Okay, so the earliest direct influences on jazz are, without a doubt, work songs and the Black Baptist Church. So work songs are really the first form of purely African-American music, and they were allowed to exist during slavery, and that was because the oppressors wanted their laborers to sing because it increased their productivity. It was also, however, a method of them preserving their culture, even as the message itself slowly changed. A work song from Africa that they brought with them, about fishing, for example, is completely meaningless to someone who has spent their entire life in a cotton field, right? They've never been fishing. They don't know anything about fishing. And we don't know how long it took for the work songs to begin to reference non-African elements, but eventually they became almost totally about the current condition of slavery, and that makes sense. The other primary influence at this point is that Black Baptist Church. Music was used first of all, to increase productivity, and second of all, in sort of a later period, to attempt to convert uh, African Americans to Christianity. Because there was some idea of, oh, well, if they're Christian, then they're people, so we'll get them into Christianity and therefore save their souls, even if we can't do anything else for them. And the music of the church is perhaps even more directly relevant to jazz than the work songs were. It's here where you see that, that African style of call and response that we talked about, which completely dominates blues and then, by extension, comes into jazz. But uh, more important even, the testifying, the expression of the church is also the earliest point where we see the individualization of the expression, which becomes jazz music. As, as Paul Barberin, an early jazz drummer, said, you heard the pastors in the Baptist churches. They were singing rhythm, more so than a jazz band. The next primary influence that comes into jazz band, the next thing that makes jazz possible, is the Civil War. Uh, first of all, because of the emancipation of the slaves, but also because at the close of the Civil War, there were a ton of instruments lying around to create the first brass bands, which sprung up everywhere. They were using these instruments that were used during military operations, so cornets and tubas and all kinds of brass instruments. When ragtime swept the country shortly thereafter, it led to a desire to play this music, this new ragtime, but mostly people didn't have pianos. They had these brass instruments. And so they started playing ragtime on their brass instruments, and that syncretism is a lot of what led to jazz. Okay, so we've got all of that. But the first and most important African-American music that exists as, as, as a folk music, as an art form, as something that we can say is, is the absolute foundation of all, basically all American popular music, including rock and roll, hip-hop, whatever, is the blues. The blues comes directly out of that African-American community, and it's a music which is designed to process and deal with the pain of life. 
So it comes out of these work songs. It comes out of these field hollers that exist during slavery, which are a product of poverty, a product of hardship, a product of oppression. In order to sing the blues, therefore, you have to have the blues, which is why a musical genre like the blues could not have come from the aristocracy. It could not have come from the oppressors because they don't have the blues. They don't know what the blues are. Why would they? They don't have any of these deep, deep hardships. So no one knows exactly when they appeared. Uh, As we'll see with much of early jazz history, ethnologists of this era were not particularly interested in slave music or in African-American music or in post-slavery music. They were concerned primarily with Native American music, which is a good thing because we have a lot of records of Native American music, but unfortunate that they paid no, absolutely no attention to the slave music, and so we don't know how blues developed. The slaves themselves were unable to document their music because they were primarily illiterate and didn't have great access to technology, so they didn't record or document it themselves. But what we do know is that the blues likely began shortly after emancipation, right? shortly after the end of the Civil War, because that's when African Americans first had any notion in this country, at least in the South, of leisure time. During slavery, you don't have any leisure time. You're working from sunup to sundown. You're so tired by the end of the day, you're basically just going to sleep, and you're not allowed to use musical instruments anyway because there's a fear that they will lead to a slave rebellion. So only in the process after the emancipation of the slaves do we start to see blues music showing up, and we first see sheet music for blues in 1912, a process that eventually culminates in the most famous early blues piece of all time, W.C. Handy, who we will hear far more about uh, in later episodes, his 1924 song, St. Louis Blues, which was the second most recorded song of the first half of the 20th century, outranked only by Silent Night. And so even though this recording comes from much, much later and we're kind of jumping out of our timeline, I think it's important to hear what the song sounds like. So here is that song, St. Louis Blues. So as you heard in that song, one of the primary distinguishing factors of blues is that it usually features some kind of initial line, a repetition of that line, and then a rhyming line. So in the song we just heard, for example, you heard them say, I hate to see that evening sun go down. I hate to see that evening sun go down because my baby, he done left this town. So there you hear that sort of call and response style that I mentioned comes pretty much directly from Africa. But it is worth noting that in African music, as I said earlier, it was used more for communication or for teaching, for history, than for an outpouring or dealing with emotion. And if you think about the history of slavery, that makes a lot of sense. So when we think about blues these days, it's more often what is called country blues, which is a single singer, often male, with just a guitar backing them, right? Guy and a guitar playing some blues. 
And this style was definitely happening from the very beginning of blues, but it wasn't the first to be recorded. It was considered sort of an itinerant musician thing. It was just guys kind of traveling around in, in often in horrific poverty. And it wasn't really put down in recordings until the late 1920s with a guy named Blind Lemon Jefferson. What was more common in the early blues period in terms of American acknowledgement of this as an art form and, and, and people buying records and hearing it were what's called classic blues, which is more commonly female sung and with a backing band. So uh, we're going to be jumping ahead here, but I think it's, it's, it's important. The first blues recording came several years after the first jazz recording. It wasn't until 1920. And the first blues recording was of a woman named Mamie Smith, who recorded a record for a label called OK, which sold surprisingly well, primarily because the African-American press pushed it. The record company did almost no promotion. They were like, this is never going to go anywhere. But it sold almost 100,000 copies, which was, for that period, a ton. So that led them to, to do a more targeted recording. And so on August 10th, 1920... They recorded Crazy Blues, which was an absolute mega hit when it came out. It sold like over a million copies, triggered this whole trend we're going to be talking about in later episodes called Race Records, and just completely transformed American music forever. So I think we should uh, hear what that sounds like. So here is that 1920 song from Mamie Smith, Crazy Blues. So that's the blues, a huge influence on literally every form of American music. We would not have American popular music without the blues. The other final primary musical influence on jazz was a form of music called ragtime. And ragtime, believe it or not, was the most popular music in America for about 25 years, uh, from around the late 1800s to the early 1900s, sort of ending just as jazz took over. The first ragtime piece published was in 1897, but by 1900, it was everywhere. It was super-duper-duper popular. So much so, even, that it was already under attack, as so many new popular things often are. In 1901, Metronome magazine said about it, Ragtime's days are numbered. We're sorry to think that anyone should imagine that ragtime was of the least musical importance. It was a popular wave in the wrong direction. That's pretty funny. Also in 1901, the American Federation of Musicians ordered their members to stop playing ragtime saying, the musicians know what's good, and if the people don't, we'll have to teach them. But this did absolutely nothing to stop the proliferation of ragtime. It just kept growing and growing, and it, it timed well because it was tied with the growing interest in America for pianos. Ragtime's primarily piano music. The published pieces were mostly piano scores and piano rolls. And by 1911, 
there were 295 different piano manufacturers in this country. Just to put that in context, there's currently something like three. In 1908 and 1909, individually, over 350,000 pianos were made each year. By 1919, over half of the pianos that were sold were player pianos, which were capable of playing piano roles that ragtime composers were churning out. So by this period, ragtime was just outrageously popular, and the most important city in ragtime was a town called Sedalia, Missouri, which is not a big place, but virtually every significant ragtime composer lived in either Sedalia, St. Louis, or Carthage, Missouri. And that's a detail that will become important to our story as we go forward, because what you almost always hear about jazz music is that the birthplace of jazz is New Orleans. And that's almost certainly not accurate. Specifically, you often hear that jazz came from a district of New Orleans, an early sin area that lasted for about 20 years from 1897 or so to 1917 called Storyville. But most jazz musicians didn't actually play in Storyville, primarily because most of the owners of bars in Storyville didn't think that dancers would buy drinks. And so they weren't looking for what was absolutely a dance art form to come into their, their bars and their brothels. It's far more accurate to say that Storyville shows us that the attitude of this period of New Orleans was quite laissez-faire and that it was open to what jazz was trying to do so that New Orleans becomes a nice incubator for jazz rather than a birthplace. It's just not likely that one place was the birthplace, but because we've long discussed it this way, there has been a tremendous amount of research put into the history of jazz in New Orleans, and so we know perhaps the most about it. So while it, I don't believe it was the birthplace of jazz, it was a phenomenal incubator for it. Because at the turn of the century, New Orleans was perhaps the most cosmopolitan, integrated, and diverse city in this country, and additionally was a city that highly valued musicians and music. There was like a lot of work for good bands. New Orleans also had a population of people that pretty much didn't exist almost anywhere else, and those people are called Creoles. Now, it's important to distinguish that there's two different kinds of Creoles. There are European-American Creoles, which are Americans who are descendant from French or Spanish ancestors, and then there are Creoles of color. These Creoles of color were the product of Creole slave owners sexually assaulting their slaves and having children with them, uh, many of whom were freed long before the Civil War. New Orleans operates under the Napoleonic Code of Law, and the, that law in 1724 had a, a, a code called the Code Noir, which made it legal to free your slaves should you choose to do so. And many slave owners freed the children of the sexual assaults they had with their slaves. So these people, these Creoles of color, lived in a different level of the societal caste system in New Orleans of the time, and so they didn't typically associate with their African-American roots. They primarily associated with those European roots. But by 1894, the Louisiana legislature passed new law, which designated anyone with any amount of African ancestry as a Negro, which forced these people to join the African-American community. These Creoles of color had, in the intervening era, received a, a lot of formal musical training in European art music, and they brought this uh, notion of European art music to the African-American community who were in the process of developing the music that we now call jazz. There's a, a famous Creole violinist named Paul Dominguez Jr. who said, see, us downtown people, we didn't think so much of this rough uptown jazz until we couldn't make a living otherwise. I don't know how they do it, but goddamn they'll do it. Can't tell you what's there on the paper, but just play the hell out of it. 
And so this new music was so-called hot music. And Dominguez, luckily for us, gave an example of this, showing the difference with the William Tell Overture done in a normal style and in a hot style. So let's listen to that now. So here's Paul Dominguez Jr. talking to us about hot versus normal. William Tell is written, and it goes on this order. Buddy Bolden is going to play it. That's hot. That's, that's what's meant by that. All right, so all of this is bubbling up, but as we said about ragtime, it comes from Missouri, not from New Orleans, and that's part of why it's not, in my opinion, right to claim that New Orleans was the birthplace of jazz. This music was everywhere, on top of which early ragtime and early jazz, they aren't that different. Many, many early bands use the term interchangeably, and whether a band was jazz or was ragtime is often still debated. There's also a huge debate over whether ragtime was simply a form of jazz in the same way that we have so many other forms as we move forward. Uh, The main difference, to my mind, is that ragtime was always composed. But to be fair, so was most of the earliest jazz. Improvisation eventually becomes the hallmark of jazz, what we talked about in our definition, but it, it took a while. Uh, Luckily, by the late 1930s, ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax at the Library of Congress had taken some interest in the early history of jazz after it had exploded as America's most popular music, and he spoke with Jelly Roll Morton, an early jazz pianist that we will be hearing a lot more about as we go forward, and we have a recording of Jelly Roll Morton playing Scott Joplin's famous Maple Leaf Rag, perhaps the most famous ragtime piece there ever was. And he plays it first in the Missouri ragtime style and then in more of a New Orleans style and allows us, therefore, to see sort of the difference in how the music was shifting around different parts of the country. So first we're going to hear Jelly Roll Morton playing Maple Leaf Rag in the Missouri ragtime style. So that was the Missouri style. Now let's hear the New Orleans style. You can see that the New Orleans style was a bit more open, a bit less regimented, but they're still fundamentally very, very similar music. Around this time, we get our first legend of jazz, and it's a guy named Buddy Bolden. Now, according to legend, he was the first jazz musician paraded along the streets of New Orleans, four or five women on his arm, playing so loudly he could be heard 14 miles away on a clear night. In his spare time, he supposedly ran a barbershop and also a scandal sheet, which is another name for an early gossip magazine. Now, uh, most of that is absolute nonsense. He was primarily a plasterer and a day laborer, but it shows 
what an outsized figure he was in the early history of jazz. He was a very, very popular cornetist in New Orleans, certainly the most popular of his time and probably the first great jazz or jazz-adjacent cornetist. Now, the cornet is an instrument almost identical to a trumpet, but uh, there are some technical differences and it has a slightly mellower tone. He was directly influenced by the music of the Black Baptist Church. At least that's what famed New Orleans trombonist Kid Ory, who we'll also be hearing more from in the future, claimed. He said, Bolden got most of his tunes from the Holy Roller Church, the Baptist Church on Jackson Avenue in Franklin. I know that he used to go to that church, but not for religion. He went there to get ideas on music. And Bolden played a march-type music in this early mixture of brass bands, ragtime, jazz. But the important thing is that he was playing with a ragged beat, ragged being the same reason we call it ragtime. And that difference is the primary way that early jazz shifts into this hot music from out of traditional sort of march brass band music. As trombonist Bill Matthews said about Buddy Bolden, on those old slow low-down blues, he had a moan in his cornet that went right through you, just like you were in church or something. But Bolden, unfortunately for us, had a very short career. By 1906, his alcoholism and a mental decline was destroying his playing. He never recorded anything. In March of 1906, he was arrested for assaulting his mother-in-law with a water pitcher. In September, he was arrested again, and then again the following March. He was eventually declared legally insane and committed to an asylum in Jackson. Stayed there for 24 years, almost never played again. Eventually, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he died at the age of 54, 1931, from cerebral arterial sclerosis. So, unfortunately, all we have from him are reports of what he probably sounded like. The best one is from another early New Orleans jazz musician named Bunk Johnson, who is someone we'll also hear about more in future episodes. Unfortunately, he was a chronic liar, but he's still the most authoritative source that we have, and uh, he provided us with a recording with him whistling in the style of supposedly how uh, Buddy Bolden played. So let's hear now from Bunk Johnson remembering Buddy Bolden. So that was Buddy Bolden. The other early hero of New Orleans jazz music we should talk about was a guy named Papa Jack Lane, who organized the first European-American ragtime bands in New Orleans, and he started his first band all the way back in 1885. His Reliance Brass Bands were started, in fact, even before Jim Crow laws reached New Orleans, and featured musicians from virtually every ethnic group in New Orleans. So even at this early time, there was integration in the music. There were African Americans, Jewish Americans, Latin Americans in his band, and most of the great early European Americans started with him, including one of the musicians we'll be hearing from at the end of this episode, Nick LaRocca. Even after segregation laws, in fact, he continued to hire light-skinned African Americans, mostly claiming when asked that they were Cuban or Mexican. He eventually retired in 1917 without having recorded, but luckily for us, he came back during the revival of the 40s and 50s, and we'll get to hear from him then. So, okay, so we've got this music. It's being played in a bunch of places, but one of them is definitely New Orleans. How does it get anywhere else? 
And the primary vehicle that it traveled with, at least in the early days, was minstrel music and vaudeville. So minstrel shows, which actually were developed long before the Civil War, originally represented a Northeastern European-American stereotype of what Southern African-American life was like. So European-Americans would paint their face in blackface and would tour around mimicking and stereotyping and ridiculing the supposed life of African-Americans. Most of the writers of the songs that they were performing had no knowledge of what the South was actually like or what the life of slaves was like. In fact, the most famous author of these minstrel songs, Stephen Foster, made only one trip in his life to the South, down the Mississippi, briefly staying in New Orleans. So this was a romanticized vision of slave life. But after emancipation, African Americans began to create their own minstrel shows, and they imitated those European American stereotypes of them because they were popular. That's what people wanted to hear. So minstrel music thus becomes an African-American imitation of a European-American caricature of African-American music and represents the first real work opportunities for African-American entertainers. And therefore, as these early jazz bands started traveling around the country, they disseminated this music to all kinds of new places. Now, the first and perhaps the most important band to leave New Orleans and tour extensively outside the South was a band called the Original Creole Orchestra. Now, in fact, they were mostly not actually Creoles, but they did feature a musician who we'll hear a lot more from later named Freddie Keppard. This band, in fact, made it all the way to California. By 1915, they were in Chicago, and by early 1917, they were in New York. Unfortunately, like many of the early jazz musicians of their kind, and everyone we've talked about so far, they were never recorded. And we don't exactly know why that was, but before we discuss the possible reasons, I think it's important to note what recording technology was actually like in 1917, 1916, this era. So we don't get electric recording until 1925. That means that for the first eight years of jazz records, they were recorded with no microphones. What there was was a giant acoustic horn, sometimes many of them, placed in an empty room. The only way to adjust the volume of the recording was to ask performers to play louder or softer. They would arrange the musicians in the room farther and closer to the horn, depending on how loud their instrument was. And the sound waves that the horns collected were passed into a diaphragm, which would vibrate and transmit those vibrations to a cutting head, which inscribed them as grooves onto some kind of medium, often wax, and then those grooves were later transported to a record. Unfortunately, percussion would completely overwhelm this system, so they just didn't use percussion instruments. And the sound spectrum that could be recorded was incredibly narrow, something like 250 hertz to maybe 2500 hertz, which is just absolutely does not enable faithful reproduction of the sounds that humans can hear. Modern CDs, for example, go from something like 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. So the difference between this recording and what we now expect is just dramatic. So the original Creole Orchestra, who I just mentioned, were actually offered to record, and they said no. They would have been the first jazz band to do a record. They turned it down. And there are a bunch of urban legends as to why that was. To be honest, truth is nobody knows. Uh, One of the popular ones is that Freddie Keppard, that musician I mentioned earlier, supposedly didn't want anyone stealing their music. Another one I've heard from Sidney Bechet, a musician we'll hear more from later, was that they just weren't interested. It is true that Freddie Keppard often covered his hands while playing with a handkerchief so that he could hide his fingerings, but you can't see fingerings on a record. That story just doesn't add up to me. The primary sources I've heard that make sense to me are either that they were offered far too little money, and specifically no money for test recordings, or that their band featured a bass, a guitar, and a violin, and as I just mentioned, all of those were not recordable in 1916. Regardless of what the reason was, they never made a record. 
but somebody did, and it changed the world. Now, in order to understand that, I want to first play for you the number one most popular song in 1916. This was the top. This is what everyone was chasing. This is what music was in 1916, and it's a song called Somewhere a Voice is Calling by John McCormick. Now, let's listen to it now. Dark under the shadows falling o'er a land and sea. Somewhere a voice is calling, calling for me. Okay, so that's the best music, the most popular music, at least, of 1916. And here, exactly 100 years ago today, on February 26, 1917, comes the original Dixieland Jazz Band, a band from New Orleans, but primarily formed to perform in Chicago in 1916. They're, they opened in New York at Ryzen Weber's by January 1917, recorded a test slide with Columbia, but they were never released, and were recorded by Victor 100 years ago today. They recorded two songs, Dixieland Jazz Band One Step and Livery Stable Blues. And when they were released to the public, they were an explosive, overwhelming hit. They sold over a million copies. They launched the jazz era. They changed music forever. And especially, they popularized the word jazz to the public. This is the first time most Americans outside of certain southern areas had ever heard the word jazz. So to close this episode, let's hear Livery Stable Blues from the original Dixieland Jazz Band, 100 years ago today, recorded January 26, exactly hard to understand why it had such a big impact, is it? So, that's a brief introduction to how we get from 1619 and the first slaves on this continent all the way to today, 100 years ago, 1917, and the first jazz recording. I hope you'll join me as we move forward through jazz history, starting next time 
with a whole lot more about the original Dixieland Jazz Band. You can follow along with the show on Twitter at JazzHistoryPod, or check out the website at AHistoryOfJazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we hear. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show.